We're going to study the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in chapter 1, so you're at ground level. If you've ever wanted to make a commitment to be here for every study in a book, this would probably only take us two years, uh, so now's your chance. Exodus chapter 1, we're going to look at the whole chapter. The topic, the midwives disobey Pharaoh's direct order to murder any male babies that are born to the Hebrews. The title of our message, The Real Midwives of Egypt. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, uh, this ancient book speaks to us today, but it can only do that, Lord, because your Holy Spirit is our teacher. We pray that he would be here in a remarkable way to show us Jesus Christ in this text and to reveal love and grace and kindness and forgiveness to our hearts. Be with us each step of the way today and as we take on this book, Waiting for Your Coming. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The article was titled, Unique Birthing Traditions Around the World. Here's a sampling. While it is customary in many places across the globe to bring gifts to a new mother, it is rare for her to give a gift to you. However, in Brazil, many new moms do exactly that when visitors come to the hospital after childbirth. In Turkey... It is traditional for new mothers to drink lahusa serbeti, a beverage made with cinnamon, sugar, and red food coloring. It is first served to the new mom in the hospital and then is enjoyed at home by guests who come to pay the new infant a visit. In Pakistan and other Islamic republics, akika is a common practice. During this baby naming tradition, which can take place on either the 7th the 14th or the 21st day after a baby is born, the infant's head is shaved and an animal sacrifice is offered on his or her behalf. Our study in the book of Exodus begins with Pharaoh of Egypt forcing a new birthing tradition on the Israelites. You see it in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now, these midwife murders never happened, but that's not to say boy babies were safe. Pharaoh would go on to command his own people, this is verse 22, every Hebrew son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. If you're wondering why, there are two reasons. One is stated in the text, and the other is implied by the context. The stated reason is in verses 9 and 10. The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. The implied reason was that the Savior of the world would be born through the nation of Israel, and the prince of this world, who is Satan, is trying to inhibit that birth. This wasn't only a battle being waged in Egypt. It was also a battle on a cosmic scale. Fast forward many centuries. The Savior came as promised, despite constant attempts by Satan to hinder his birth. Now the devil wants to destroy those of us who are born again into God's family. The world we find ourselves occupying is still an Egypt for believers in Jesus Christ. The first chapter of Exodus will put our harrowing situation into spiritual perspective. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, we're still in Egypt and you are a high-value target. And number two, we're still in Egypt and you have a valuable tactic. 
Let's take a look at verses 1 through 14 and our being a high-value target. You might remember during the 2003 invasion of Iraq by a coalition led by the United States military, we developed a set of playing cards to help troops identify the most wanted members of then-President Saddam Hussein's government. The highest-ranking cards, starting with the aces and kings, were used for the most high-value targets. The ace of spades was Saddam himself. The aces of clubs and hearts were his two sons. Such playing cards have been used as far back as the U.S. Civil War and in World War II and in the Korean War. Now, the devil probably doesn't use playing cards. He might, but I'm guessing he doesn't. But be assured, you are a high-value target. Jesus told the apostle Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It isn't just apostles that he seeks. The devil is described by Peter as going about like a roaring lion, seeking whomever he may devour. And so the devil wanted Peter, and you say, well, that's a high-value target, the leader of the apostles. But Peter turns around and says, he's a roaring lion that's seeking whoever he can devour. That's you and I. And so we're all high-value targets. We are all on the devil's hit list. So keep that application in mind as we look at the interpretation of the chapter verse by verse. And so verse 1 these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was in Egypt already. The book of Exodus opens here with a five-verse summary of the final 14 chapters of Genesis. Talk about being concise. Genesis ended with the story of Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. He was the son of Jacob who was despised by his brothers and sold by them into slavery. They told their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild beast, and then they brought Jacob, Joseph's coat of many colors, stained with blood as proof. In a stunning display of God's providence, Joseph ended up second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt just at a time when a great famine hit the land. The famine was so severe, it endangered the very survival of the Israelites. His exalted position enabled Joseph to care for his father and brothers, moving them to Goshen and under the protection of Egypt. Those are the 70 persons, including Joseph, who was already in Egypt. Then verse 6, Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Looking ahead, when the Israelites leave Egypt headed for the promised land, we're told in chapter 12 there will be about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. That means there's somewhere between 2 and 3 million Israelites counting women and children. Now, we're going to see that their numbers worried Pharaoh, but he wasn't the only enemy. Further back still in the Garden of Eden, God had promised to send a seed of Eve's who would be the savior of the world. The world and all mankind descended from Adam and Eve needs saving on account of the sin of our original parents. If you're not a Christian, you need saving. You are born dead in trespasses and sins. There's no good work you could ever perform that will earn you salvation. You can't achieve it, or you only can receive it as a gift. And the good news is that Jesus, God's promised seed, 
did come to save you and died on the cross and rose from the dead. And the Bible says if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are here to hear the gospel, the good news that salvation is available to you. All you need to do is confess the Lord, repent of your sin, and be born again. Now, part of the promise was that the seed was going to crush him, so Satan got to work right away trying to interfere with the coming of this person. He incited Cain to kill Abel. Later on, some of his fallen angels mated with human women in an attempt to corrupt human DNA. Their offspring called the Nephilim, a race of giants that threatened the very survival of the human race. They were a major reason that God sent the global flood, preserving eight souls on the ark who would repopulate the earth with a clean genetic line. Enter Abram, and God reveals that he's going to bring the promised seed from the miracle child born to Abram and Sarai. Their names get changed to Abraham and Sarah, and the child promised them after it was impossible for them to produce a child was Isaac. Isaac's sons were Esau and Jacob, the Jacob who with his 12 sons and their families made up the 70 who settled in Goshen and then became millions. God was honoring his promise to send the seed and his further promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Satan is going to interfere in Egypt. If he could see to it that all the male babies were killed, it would stop the seed from ever being born. This is Satan's go-to strategy. In New Testament times, once the birth of Jesus was announced to King Herod by the Magi, Satan interfered by having Herod order the murder of infants, hoping to kill the Babel, the Babel, kill the baby who was born to be the king of the Jews. And so this is Satan's, uh, this is his trademark move, kill babies, because the seed is coming, and if I can stop the seed from coming, then he cannot crush my head. And so everywhere, there's other episodes in the Old Testament as well where Satan interferes trying to stop the line of the Messiah. Mark here that God's chosen people, in this case the Israelites, were targeted. We still are today for different reasons. Satan is no less malevolent and destructive. If anything, he's had more practice. He's more sinister than ever. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Scholars don't agree on exactly who was this Pharaoh. The point is that he was not favorably inclined towards Joseph's descendants. We experience something like this, don't we? Even here in America, it seems every month there's some new government restriction on the practice or promotion of biblical Christianity in America. We're coming into the Christmas season, and that means that municipalities are going to struggle with whether or not they can have a manger scene or any Christian images on public property. And for the most part, councils are backing off uh, because they don't want to be sued by the ACLU or these other groups, and so they're, they're banning this practice. And, and it's, a, it's an assault uh, by, in a covert way by those who govern us uh, about the beliefs that we have. Verse 9, and he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Now, think of this. 
the Israelites were immigrants and they were beginning to outnumber the Egyptians. They lived along the route invading armies would take. And so, for example, the Egyptians had trouble with the Hittite empire. The Hittites would come through Goshen and they would say something like, hey, Israelites, 600,000 strong, how about you join with us and we'll overthrow Egypt? And that's a formidable force. And so Pharaoh had, uh, from a, a, a leadership standpoint, he had some real concerns about what was happening in Goshen. They were a considerable threat. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. They were dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. You notice twice their servitude is described as being with rigor. Commenting on that, one historian wrote, they not only put them to hard work, they used them in a very barbarous manner, abusing them with their tongues, beating them with their hands. The king not only compelled them to servile work, but commanded them heavier things than they could bear, heaping labors one upon another. And if any, through weakness, withdrew himself, it was judged a capital crime, and the most merciless and cruel were set over them as taskmasters. Now, with all that, notice in verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Who would have thought the strategy would have the very opposite effect? And so we see God obviously working in and through these people. It's the same today. The Apostle Paul said of any and all afflictions, he said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so Paul, who, who knew affliction, uh, more than any other Christian at that time uh, in what he had endured. He said, all of the affliction that you endure on this side of eternity is a light affliction compared to the weight of the glory you're going to receive in heaven. And so he looked at his situation uh, as being seated in heaven and from heaven's perspective. A common way of describing growth from afflictions is to compare us in our troubles to gold being refined in the furnace. Thus, Job could say, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Likewise, the apostle Peter would write, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's because I'm older and have been buffeted more that I believe this more than ever, but I also tack on a footnote as well. I believe God brings us forth as gold. It's his promise. But it takes time in the crucible, and you know what? It's hot in there, almost unbearably so. And I like the way Peter put it. He says, for a little while you've been grieved in your trials, but in the end, when you see Jesus Christ, your faith is going to be rewarded. And so Peter's very realistic. Peter says your trials can grieve you and they could take a long, long time and you won't see the ultimate effect of them until you stand before the Lord. 
It took months for Job to come forth as gold. Uh, scholars, it's hard to time the book of Job, but when you look at it and see certain things happening in it, there's certain clues that tell you that it could have been four, five, six months after he lost everything that he sat on the ash heap scraping boils all day. Along the way, he often faltered. I don't think it's going too far to say it could take years in some furnaces to come forth as gold. Maybe you have a chronic illness or something like that. Some of you have been in trials for a long time. Some of us have trials that are going to last our entire lifetime. It's a crucible, and it's not always comfortable. Peter talked about the ultimate end of our affliction, saying, though you're tested by fire, you'll be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means when you see the Lord. We'll be golden at his coming for us to reward us. Until then... You're going to have your ups and downs, like Job who struggled to put his suffering into perspective. If you're being buffeted, you're having a hard time with it, you're in good company, you're normal. God is definitely in your future. Persevere. Now, in Exodus, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The afflictions were real. They were severe. Israelites died from the rigor inflicted by their taskmasters. I want to point that out. Because a lot of times when people are struggling in various trials, um, we think that they'll learn their lesson. You know, our, our, the way trials are presented to, to Christians in the West are God wants to teach you a spiritual lesson. And as soon as you learn that lesson, man, you're out of the trial and on to the next lesson. Well, these Israelites, they were just being afflicted. The lesson was they needed to be redeemed. They needed to be delivered. And it was going to be quite some time before that happened. And along the way, they were dying. And, and so it puts a little bit of a different spin on it, a more realistic spin. I guess this morning, one thing I want you to hear from me is that we need to be more realistic about the afflictions that we're in and how much they can hurt. They persevered, though. They endured. And therein is victory while you wait for your light affliction to pass and your refining to end. If you're a Christian you're a high-value target. You don't need to be famous or in charge of a large ministry. Since we're all members of the body of Christ, all of us are under attack. You might think, and it, it, it might make sense to think, Billy Graham is a high-value target, the ace of spades, maybe. But you know what? Maybe Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher was the ace of spades, if that's a, the individual who led him to faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have that guy or gal, you don't have Billy Graham. And so there's no telling where you are in Satan's deck, but you are a high-value target. Know that. Now, secondly, we're still in Egypt, and you have a valuable tactic. I love the original Karate Kid with Ralph Macchio. It's one of those movies where if you're flipping through the channels and it's on, I'm sorry, you have to watch it. It's a classic. It's... it's, it's it's just the greatest coming-of-age movie of all time. One film critic wrote, everyone knows it. Who doesn't get chills up their spine when Daniel LaRusso sets up for the crane kick? Crease yelling to Johnny from the sidelines, finish him! Dramatic horns blaring as part of the score. It's been firmly embedded in the public consciousness ever since Daniel used it to snap back Johnny Lawrence's head and win the All-Valley Karate Tournament. Man, what a moment. It still sends chills up my spine. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi had promised Daniel, if do right, 
no can defense, which sounds more like a Hispanic accent, I know, but that's, I, only have the one, I only have the one accent. It works for me. We have a tactic like that in our spiritual arsenal. It is mentioned in verse 21 where we read, the midwives feared God. We'll get to that. Keep that in mind as we look at Pharaoh's next strategy as a tool of Satan's to stop the Israelites from growing. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she can live. These ladies were either Hebrew midwives or they may have been Egyptians who were midwives to the Hebrews. I read a lot of arguments both ways, and frankly, no one can figure it out, and it doesn't ultimately matter. They were more like supervisors of other midwives. I say that because, after all, you'd need more than two midwives to serve the needs of several hundred thousand prolific women. In our modern world, for example, in Africa, a single midwife provides care for 500 women a year, giving about 100 births during that year. And so I didn't do the numbers, but if you're looking at tens or hundreds of thousands of women, you need a lot more than two midwives. So let's see them as supervisors. It's the Shifra and Pua midwife business. Now, I'm also guessing they weren't regular guests of Pharaoh. I don't see him taking meetings with them to find out how their midwifing was going. There they are now, surrounded by all the power of Egypt. Can you imagine how very small and intimidated they must have felt. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? I mean, some of you have been in meetings where you're intimidated by your boss in his office. I mean, imagine you are in the center of world power, and not, not like the White House even, I mean, as, as amazing as that would be, the, the kind of world power where you could die any moment because of the whim of one man who thought he was a god. So this is a serious moment. They must have been wondering what in the world they were doing there, and then suddenly there was Pharaoh himself. I'm sure they didn't expect to see him. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on their birth stools, kill the boy babies. The girl babies can live. Next. Wow. End of meeting. No discussion. What's a midwife to do? The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. I know first they said nothing to Pharaoh. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when Peter is confronted by the Jewish leaders and told to cease from preaching the gospel, he immediately says, we're going to obey God rather than men. Shifra and Pua didn't do that. Maybe they hadn't thought through their civil disobedience yet, or maybe they had a plan like the one we're going to discuss in a moment. But the point I'm trying to make is that God will be with you in those moments telling you what to say and what not to say. Sometimes what not to say is just as important. They saved the male children alive. Now, here's where it gets important to remember there were probably other midwives. If there were, then they either all decided to disobey Pharaoh as a group, or Shifra and Pua came up with a plan that would undermine Pharaoh's command, not needing the other midwives to get on board. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And so after a time, they were called back because Pharaoh had news that the male babies were allowed to live. Mind you, Pharaoh had expressly commanded these women to kill the male babies. He would have no compunction killing them. 
This wasn't a due process situation. They didn't show up with their attorney. Pharaoh could kill you. And, and so this was serious stuff. It's like in Star Wars when Darth Vader tells that admiral, you have failed me for the last time. I was going to do a Darth Vader accent, but it would sound Hispanic as well. So. <laughs> Who wants that? You have failed me for the last... Remember that scene? You have failed me for the last time, and then the guy... <laughs> guy gets choked out from a distance, and then he falls, and he, Darth Vader says, now you're in charge. Oh, hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, just what I want. So this guy was the original Darth Vader. Verse 19, and the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Were they lying? Well, maybe. In favor of it being a lie, we were just told that they actively did not do as the king commanded them, but a refusal to act may not be a lie. Here's what I mean. Suppose they changed their policy and delayed their response time, making this a true statement. I would see this as an honest workaround. Pharaoh says to kill the male babies when we're delivering them. What if they're delivered and we don't get there on time? And so they let the word be known, especially if they were Hebrew midwives. Uh, hey, we're, you need to slow down your rounds to these homes where there are pregnant women so that the babies are being born without the help of the midwife. In favor of them not lying, perhaps God miraculously intervened and gave all the Hebrew women quick labor so that the midwives could not get there in time even if they tried. This would be a great strategy on God's behalf, and it would be a great time to be uh, nine months pregnant in Israel. <laughs> honey, my water broke. Honey, my baby's here. Huh? Huh? No labor pains, no cesareans, just bam. Babies being dropped like crazy. And so I think God did that. Can we as Christians lie to save lives? Believe it or not, that's a big ethical debate. One writer introduces the subject this way. Christian theologians are divided on this subject. Some, like Augustine, believed it is never permissible to lie. Others, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who had ample time to contemplate this issue from the perspective of a Nazi prison cell, held that under certain circumstances, lying was not only morally permissible, but morally mandated. Thus, Bonhoeffer advocated deceiving the enemy in circumstances of war. He had no compunction about lying in order to facilitate escape for Jews facing extermination. Bonhoeffer would be implicated in a plot to assassinate Hitler, as a matter of fact. Now, I don't know what you think about all of that, but... Um, it's easy to say lying to save lives is wrong on paper until you're faced with it yourself. If you've ever been in a situation like that, I would like to talk to you uh, because your word will hold a little bit more weight with me than that of a philosopher trying to figure this out uh, or a theologian. So I'm just going to leave it there for us to ponder. That's not the issue at hand. Verse 20, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. The wording seems to indicate that the midwives did something, like delay their arrival. At any rate, Pharaoh's strategy failed. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. It seems like they didn't have any children of their own, but now God began to bless them with their own family. Score one for the good guys. But know that Pharaoh was not about to be that easily thwarted. Verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying... Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. 
A command went out to all the citizens of Egypt. If they saw a Hebrew baby boy, they were to take him from his mother and toss him into the Nile River to drown. This is serious stuff. Crazy things like this happen throughout history. Right now, I don't want to say too much about it because I didn't research it. It just came to me first service. But right now, there's a crazy guy leading the Philippines. Did you know about the president of the Philippines? He's given people permission to murder drug dealers. And so if you know there's a drug dealer living across the street from you, you can go over there and murder him, and the government won't do anything about it. Drugs are down. <laughs> But, I, I, you know, I, I can't believe that we would be into a situation like that where there isn't due process. I mean, there's problems with our legal system, but we don't want to get into the Wild West like that. And so it's not just ancient, it, oh, how could they do Those Egyptians are crazy, yeah. And so are some other people, too. And so he commanded his sensei, if you see a boy Hebrew baby, just grab that thing and throw it into the river. Nobody's going to do anything to you. I have to see this a satanic I know studies have been done on group behavior and on mob behavior. People have researched Nazi Germany under Hitler, trying to understand how ordinary German citizens could condone and even participate in Hitler's final solution. To my limited knowledge, those studies overlook something that seems foundational, that Hitler was deeply involved in the occult. One historian wrote, the truth of the matter is that Hitler had a direct personal experience of occult forces and entities and a direct personal relationship with occult forces. I don't think you can understand human history at all or address the problem of evil apart from an understanding that God is at war with the prince of this world. God's seed will crush the devil's seed, but there's going to be a lot of fighting along the way to the promised redemption and to the restoration of creation. This chapter ends with baby boys sinking to the bottom of the Nile River. It doesn't seem like a win for Israel. And we're going to say in a minute that there are some spiritual perspectives that we have on this, but I want to bring the reality of this. Um, God's plan is moving forward, but there's a real warfare, and people are really dying in Egypt. Now, what about spiritual victory? Well, for one thing, we learn that God works through the most unlikely people. Who would have thought that two women, midwives, would withstand the command of the mightiest man on earth, risking their lives? If there was a strategy session in heaven with Michael the archangel and Gabriel and whoever else is up there that, that you know, is in charge of these things and getting ready for battle in the cosmic arena, and God comes in and he says, I've got a plan. We're going to go against Pharaoh with all the might of the midwives. <laughs> what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, you watch. Shifra and Pua are going to stand before Pharaoh and not blink. They're going to do my will, and they're going to blow his mind. And they do. It's the most ridiculous strategy you could have imagined. If you were at that strategy, if, that, if you came with that strategy, when you could employ angels and armies and do anything you want. But see, that's the power of the cross. That's the fact that the, God uses the weak and the insignificant, the poor and the disadvantaged in order to show himself and his power to the world. And that means he can use us. The more highly you think of yourself, the less likely you are to be used by God. 
doesn't mean that you should think less of yourself. You shouldn't think of yourself at all and just let God do what he's going to do. Now, another thing, God shows us we don't need anything other than him in our battles. These midwives were not provided any weapons. They weren't given the ability to perform miracles. They remained ordinary but did something extraordinary thanks to simply believing God. Later on, God's going to have a different tactic when he sends Moses and his staff. That staff's going to do some crazy, incredible things when he fights the gods of Egypt. But for the meantime, he says, you guys, just the way you are, just two lady midwives, you're all I need to completely thwart the plan of the mightiest man on earth. Ultimately, our point here is that they feared God more than they feared any man. They stood before Pharaoh knowing he had the power of life and death over them, and they did not blink. They looked him right in the eye, and they said, here's what's happening. Hebrew women are stronger than Egyptian women. They're given birth before they get there. Whether we're delaying our getting there or not, that's the reality of it. We haven't killed anybody. They're an embodiment of Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel where he says, don't fear those who kill the body but who cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus' way of telling us you don't need to fear any man any time because you have the fear and the awe of me. In their case, God blessed their fear with families. The history of God's people, however, is overflowing with those who did not blink but who were martyred where they took their stand. The writer of Hebrews reminds us Others were tortured. They didn't accept deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise." Those who fear God rather than man, they stand before their trials and their situations and they fear God rather than man and some of them are delivered to some great benefit on this planet and they, they get all kinds of great things and they, they have children and riches and health and others get cut down right where they are. But for all of them, they would all say to die is gain. And, and that's the picture that you get all through the Bible. My favorite example, of course, I use it all the time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Daniel's three friends. I don't want to tell the whole story, but you know it. King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image. He says, you're all going to bow down to my image. They say, yeah, no, we're not. He says, well, if you don't bow down to my image and worship me, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. I'm going to turn it up seven times hotter than it's ever been. You're going to burn. They said, well, okay. We're not going to bow to your image. God's going to deliver us, or he's not going to deliver us, but we're still not going to bow. Nebuchadnezzar pulls his hair out, has his soldiers throw them into the furnace. His soldiers burn up because they get too close to the furnace. And then he looks in, and there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some fourth guy. They're all walking around talking and playing racquetball probably in the furnace. Who knows? <laughs> he has them come out. They don't even smell like smoke. Jesus is in there with them. And so, but these guys, they say, hey, to die is gain. We are not going to bow down no matter what you do to us. If we live, we live. If we die, we die. You can't do anything about that. There's, there's nothing that can defend against that. It's a fantastic tactic 
It's our only ultimate tactic. You don't care if you live or die, but only that God receives the glory. Listen, this story of the Exodus is brutal and it's bloody. There's no version of it that comes in with less than an R or an NC-17 rating for violence. People are going to die in this book by the tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands. Why am I telling you that? Because sometimes we sanitize our trials. We think, my car won't start, and I'm going to be late to work. Father, you know the trial I'm under right now. My car won't start. Please, Lord, miraculously zap my battery. <laughs> All right, maybe that is a real trial. But nobody gets bloody. Nobody dies. This, this is a serious book with serious warfare, and we are still on an Egypt. This earth is still like an Egypt to us, and serious things happen to people. But you know when they happen? You have this one tactic, and that is to fear God rather than man and to take your stand. Talk about the armor of God, right? The helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, those kinds of things. Whenever that's portrayed in an artist's rendering, at least any time I've seen it I, in my limited scope, in a children's book or an adult book or whatever, the, the Roman soldier looks so fantastic, doesn't he? Shiny shield, brand new helmet, his sword just glistening. He's in his dress uniform. He's like having a parade review. I want him to start showing the guys like, you know, after movies like Gladiator, where there's holes in their thing, they're dented and blood and their sword is broken in half. That's the kind of warfare that we're in. We're not in an antiseptic, sanitized warfare. We're in some real warfare where people take hits, serious hits, physical hits, emotional hits, spiritual hits. But you know what? Fear God rather than men. If do right, no can defense. Let's pray.